Welcome to Pediatrics Now, cases, updates, and discussions for the busy practitioner. I'm your host, Holly Waymont. I work for UT Health San Antonio's Department of Pediatrics. In this podcast, we explore how we can provide the best, most cutting-edge, compassionate care for children. We hope to give you a unique and behind-the-scenes edge from our expert guests. After listening, click on the link on this podcast for free credit that may include CME, MOC, or ethics credit, depending on the topic or podcast. Today on Pediatrics Now, we're bringing you Grand Rounds. Here's a really interesting talk. This is for MOC credit. It's my great pleasure to introduce uh, this morning's Grand Round speaker, Dr. Maria uh, Fierro, who is a developmental behavioral pediatrician and assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at UT Health San Antonio. He's originally from California, but spent most of his life in Texas. He was undergraduate at St. Mary's University and received his MD from Harvard Medical School. Subsequently, he completed his pediatric residency at Seattle Children's Hospital and his fellowship in developmental behavioral pediatrics at Children's Hospital of Colorado. He has been in San Antonio for more than two decades now, and his goal is to empower parents to advocate for their children with special needs. Dr. Fierro, thank you very much for accepting our invitation. I'm looking forward to your presentation. The floor is yours. Thank you. Well, th thank you for the invite. And as you said, you know, I'm new to the UT family, but I'm not new to the San Antonio community. So some of you may have, we may have crossed paths at some point. <laughs> um, when they asked uh, to talk today, I wanted to focus on something simple and, and um, kind of primary care, kind of get our foot in the door as far as like how I can help, you know, the residents and then the general pediatricians out there. But I, I hopefully it'll be something that uh, the specialist and subspecialists can get little tidbits of uh, to be able to apply to their um, clinics and their patients that they serve also. Uh, obviously, I, oh, I have no disclosures, actually. Nothing that I'm going to talk about is going to be off-label or anything like that. When I, when I have an opinion, I think I'll probably tell you it's my opinion. But uh, literally, I just wanted to go over a couple of the general screeners that are um, used out in the community. Uh, even talk, maybe touch on the autism, since obviously as a developmental pediatrician, that is very common and probably the number one referral that I get uh, in the DB clinic. Uh, and then just su some suggestions as far as what the AAP suggests and what, um, you know, we can do to start moving the ball forward to help help our kids that have special needs um, and identify the ones that need more help. And then just kind of tell you uh, kind of my perspective on how I hope to be a, an asset to, to the UT community. Um, the AAP screening recommendations are, and you'll see this slide over and over again, it's just um, to monitor at nine months, 18 months. 24 months, 30 months, and at four to five years of age, like school readiness. Um, obviously, 24 months, they just suggest doing an autism screen. At 18 months, they want you to do some sort of formal uh, screener. Um, just screening, is, is there's no magic to screening, but it allows us to uh, at least know that we're asking the questions in all the different domains. Take some creative liberty, and, and according to the CDC, when it comes to neurodevelopmental issues or disorders, it's about 23% of the population. I took liberty to say one in four just because I like to keep things simple to remember. So of the you see in a general pediatric clinic, almost one in four have some sort of uh, developmental difference or developmental disability. Um, that's a huge chunk of uh, people. Uh, and just in the United States, I think it's estimated to be like 16 million children. Just to put it in perspective, asthma, which is what, you know, kind of the bread and butter of uh, General pediatrics is one in 12. Uh, so just to kind of let you guys know that you see it every single day. And I, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's really important just to be aware. <laughs> so the latest uh, CDC uh, findings are one in 36. Uh, and I'll go into a little bit about how that, that came about and sort of what we've learned from that uh, and things moving forward. Uh, remember, I, I just said in the previous slide about one in four. To understand when I talk about autism and then attention deficit disorder being one in 10 and all the other developmental conditions that, that, that you guys see on a, on, on a daily basis, um, you can have more than one, obviously. So you can have a child that has a hearing impairment and autism or intellectual disability and hearing impairment. So um, they do overlap. 
someone's taking control. Who's taking control of my slides? Oh, sorry. So here, uh, here, the impairment uh, is one uh, to, to three out of every thousand. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that in the future. Learning differences, which is just like people that need a little extra help in school uh, versus an official learning disability. That's why I put it in parentheses. The official uh, learning disabilities like dyslexia is roughly about one in 60. But just a, a difference where someone needs maybe a little extra help uh, uh, that goes a little bit beyond like formal consistent tutoring in class or that kind of thing is, is one in five. So that's like 20% of the individuals. Uh, I, I don't need to read, read you, but intellectual disability, uh, one in three out of 100. And then just a generalized language delay of some sort that gets identified, it's just a delay. So a lot of these kids will actually improve and get better. Um, motor delays as, as, as described underneath there. And the one that I wanted to just touch on is cerebral palsy is about three in every thousand. And uh, obviously, you know, depending on your population, like I know that Dr. Gong does the premier clinic, um, that uh, obviously we see more premature there, but cerebral palsy is actually more uh, common in, in, the, in kids that are not premature. But obviously, having intraventricular hemorrhages or, or brain issues can, you know, predispose you to having those 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 uh, problems. Well, the reason I gave you the sort of the AP recommendations and guidelines, they actually came up with a good suggestion on um, kind of a generalized uh, healthcare visit for a primary care pediatrician. Um, but I think it's something that we can all apply at some point um, when we see it, when we see our patients. The most important thing, and you guys know this on a daily basis, is trying to elicit a parent's concerns. You, you don't want to wait till the end of the visit and say, hey, and is there anything you're concerned about? Because then you're stuck there for another 10, 20 minutes. And I know you only have a 12-minute slot <laughs> to see a patient or 15, depending on how, you, how, your, how your clinic works. Uh, but believe it or not, uh, parent concerns is actually even more more sensitive to identify possible neurodevelopmental uh, delays than even some of the screeners that we're going to go over in a few seconds. Um, so you ask the parents if they have any concerns, and ask parents if they, anybody else in the in like the daycare or anybody else, even even little Aunt, Aunt, Aunt Mary who you know used to be a retired special education teacher or whatever whatever the case may be. It's, it's just good to get information from others because we only get to see a snapshot of a child for a few minutes. So I think anything we can do to get garner more information will be beneficial in the long run. Um, and also, most importantly, is we can put my, my, uh, parents' minds at ease at times, where they say, well, little Johnny, all, she, all they do is stick the, the, my beads and put them in their mouth. And I'm like, well, maybe they shouldn't be putting the beads in the mouth because they're not at the appropriate level to be able to control that or whatever the case may be. But just being able to put parents' minds at ease also helps. And you guys deal with that every time with a variety of different questions, be it sleep, eat, yada, yada, yada. But, but the AAP recommends not only eliciting a parents' concerns, but um, documenting it and, and maintaining a developmental history because you want to see how a child goes over time. So if uh, little Johnny was, you know, uh, already using words at 18 months and then you're seeing them at 30 months and they're using no words at whatsoever. Well, that's obviously more, a more concern than if someone that had, you know, possible hearing issues and didn't have any words at 18 months and is just starting at 24 months to, to jargon and have single words. Well, that's considered delayed, but, but it's something that you put it in the right context uh, as far as like how you're going to move the ball forward as far as referrals uh, for either therapy or um, early childhood intervention. Uh, so the AP just recommends that we document these sort of things and just understand what the risk factors are. The AP recommends that we continue to have a good um, documentation of parental concerns and our own personal concerns and um, identifying sort of the risk factors um, that go on, uh, both protective and not protective. And that's what I was talking about. You know, prematurity pushes you at higher risk for certain things or drug exposure in utero, yada, yada, yada. And then as part of the screening, if they if you identify on a screen a motor concern, we'll obviously follow it up with, with a physical examination and then obviously decide, you know, your best course of action. Obviously, it's still clinical, um, you know, acumen that decides what you're going to do um, as far as like, you know, if you're they're hypothonic and you're like going to get a thyroid or a CK level to, you know, that whatever you want to screen. Um, but obviously, if, if it's just a, uh, something that, that's mild and you just want to see how they progress over time, it's okay. That's why they talk about documenting and then kind of following up. Um, as far as neuroimaging, 
honestly, I usually suggest mirror imaging when when I, when you see a significant asymmetry between right and left or, or upper and lower ex extremities or um, severely, you know, uh, brisk uh, reflexes or something like that. Um, medical evaluations, you know, we try to address, you know, some chronic issues. The number one question is like, when do we order, you know, genetic studies or when do we send to the subspecialist stuff like that? Obviously, it's going to be up to your comfort level. But um, like in my personal experience, sometimes uh, ordering, you know, uh, genetic studies can be sometimes daunting because we get all these uh, of unknown clinical significance back. Since I think that the science is way ahead of our abilities to uh, help uh, families and ourselves at bedside. Uh, but, you know, I think that the push right now is slowly towards the whole exome sequencing and stuff. But uh, obviously, I defer to our genetic specialist for, for that, those sort of things. I'll be honest with you. When I do an evaluation for an autism spectrum disorder, I don't actually do um, uh, uh, genetic testing until a couple of visits in because I feel like uh, there are other things that we need to be addressed first uh, with, uh, with, with children with um, that disability. And then it helps with parent parental buy-in. The, the one thing that I worry about is that if I order a genetic test, uh, they think that, oh, well, it's going to be all in the genes. And it's a low, 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 low yield, but hopefully it'll help us in case anything were to come up in the future as far as prognosis. And then the most important thing is as you're evaluating and screening, you know, just doing the early, uh, referring towards early intervention. Um, most importantly is like, just because someone has a, a concern, the mom is concerned, dad's concerned, Dia Lupus concerned. Uh, it's important to like, it's okay to document it, but you don't always have to just jump on it and do something about it. Or if you're concerned, the parents say everything's fine, but the, but you're worried that, you know, the, the, the nine month old is uh, not crawling or sitting up or whatever. It's okay to, to, to kind of red flag it for yourself internally and then decide what, what you want to do, a course of action, bring them back sooner, you know, or um, just make sure that at the next visit, will you do, um, next time you see them, you do a formal um, screener also. This is my two cents on hearing loss. About 50% of them uh, can be identified in the newborn period. And obviously, it could be from a genetic cause, which is the primary issue, and then a small, smaller percentage of congenital infection. I know that people are concerned, you know, in the NICU when uh, they, they are on neurotoxic, uh, you know, antibiotics or medications. Uh, that's actually, that's a very small percentage, but it's something to be, be aware of. Um, it's really good to know, you know, everybody talks about chronic ear infections. Um, just having chronic ear infections giving you long-term hearing loss is about 4%. So it's a very small percentage of hear, uh, uh, people with hearing impairment. But the most important thing is when you have an ear infection, if you have any kind of middle ear effusion and stuff, the dampness of the, your hearing acuity can last up to 12 weeks. You know, and there's nothing you can do about it. But let's say, for example, you have three ear, ear infections in a year. Well, that doesn't meet the criteria for, you know, having a severe chronic uh, condition. But I want you to know that it does affect the child's exposure to, you know, um, music, uh, uh, language, and the like. But the most important thing is know that if you have any concerns that involve speech and you want to do speech therapy, you do have to do a formal hearing screen. It's a insurance law or rule that we just have to have it done. Even if you're sending somebody because they have a feeding impairment, they have to have a hearing screen. And I know it stinks, but we it has to it has to be documented or else it'll slow the process down and the process is already slow to begin with. Uh, like I said before, things that sort of uh, you can kind of mentally red flag is uh, children that have prematurity. Um, they have a higher chance of having attention deficit disorder. They have executive functioning difficulties and learning issues, probably twice the, the general population. So when I said one in 10 have ADHD, it's actually like two to 2.5 pretend and kids with premature get labeled as having attention or attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder before they get out of school age. Obviously, socioeconomic status uh, plays a fa fact. Like we heard a few uh, Fridays ago, kids with congenital heart disorders are at higher risk of having learning issues or, or developmental uh, aberrations or differences, uh, drug exposure in utero. And, and the interesting part about drug exposure in utero is that there are some drugs that are better than others uh, as far as development outcomes, but I try not to give people lists of what drugs to take. But <laughs> we tend to see for long-term issues that the THC does not seem to have as, as, as much uh, issues and that kind of stuff. What I see is the kids that end up having the, the neonatal abstinence syndrome in the NICU, um, you know, with the, with the methylphenidate products or those kind of things. Even cocaine, if you don't have the, the abrupt show for placenta, um, 
area of that of the uterine uh, wall uh, prematurely, uh, they they bode better than kids that uh, that use long term um, uh, mothers that use long term medications. Um, so believe it or not, the more difficult neonatal accident syndrome cases tend to be the parents that like are trying to do the right thing and are on methadone because it's uh, kind of a longer half life than people that just use heroin. Uh, every once in a while, but obviously neither of those drugs is great for the developing brain. Under stimulation, you know, uh, we see more and more where children are being raised by grandparents, and you just can't keep up when you're getting older with with the little little ones. Um, and that obviously is something we want to factor in when we're screening and finding that they're a little bit behind. Um, when you see a kid with plagiocephaly, uh, uh, especially brachiocephaly, where it's just flat on the back of their head, you always wonder, like, did they spend too much time in the car seat? Because a, a, a lot of times that ends up being kind of like the, 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 the relative babysitter for, for some um, individuals and caregivers who either have forgotten or for convenience sakes uh, like to place uh, individuals there, the, the children there. So getting back to the meat, meat, meat of, the, of, the, of, the, of the presentation. So the AP screening guidelines, once again, nine, 18 months, um, official general screener at 30 months and then at four to five years. It's a, they actually just suggest some kind of school readiness. They actually don't recommend any discrete uh, screener because they haven't, uh, they don't have the, the um, they, haven't, they haven't come up with what the research to suggest one particular screener that might be better than another. Um, common screening tools that you actually use. The one I see the most is the ages and stages, ages and stages questionnaire. And this is a meta-analysis that was done because I know the AP likes everything to be sensitive and specific over, um, you know, 70%. The only reason I wanted to bring this up is um, the ages and stages. Yeah, I know you guys can read, but just for you to know the numbers, when I say that uh, sensitivity is 60%, that sensitivity of aberrations that are more than two standard deviations from, from what, um, what the mean is. And these are numbers at 24 months, okay? So if you look up at greater than 43 months, obviously the, the uh, sensitivity and specificity changes where the, if you, the older children, the sensitivity is only like 50%, but the specificity is like 92% because they're supposed to do a little bit more. But the one in parentheses, if you go back to the 32.5, um, that's, that's like being one standard deviation off. Uh, delayed. So it's not necessarily as sensitive as we, we want it to be, but it's the best we got right now. And it makes us ask the questions and at least, um, you know, as, as screeners go, you do things um, serially to see if you can glean out any kind of concerns. So in, in nine months, you know, I think that uh, everybody has their own little shtick as far as they how they go in and how they approach a uh, developmental visit or a, or a routine healthcare visit. Um, I like to focus on one, a couple of things. So at nine month olds, I always think of getting able to get into sitting and responding to their name. So that way they, they, they work on, you know, the hearing, the hearing issues, you know, do they know, do they recognize their name? Because that kind of starts gleaning the possibility of having either a spectrum disorder or just being, being understimulated. So being able to play peekaboo, um, hearing some consonant jargon. You have kids that that that, that are babbling, and, but they're not using a lot of consonants. Um, as far as like fine motor skills, believe it or not, the thing that you do at nine months is now that you're sitting up, we'll be able to transfer things from one hand to the other, um, banging things midline. Uh, you want to see kids uh, being able to cross the midline, uh, starting to play patty cake with, with 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 people. As far as like you taking their hands and doing it, as far as them doing it, uh, not necessarily doing them uh, independently. So, so when I think of a nine month old visit, I think about getting into sitting, being able to change from one end to another, and responding to their name. Those are the things that kind of clue us. If they, you don't have these, please understand that kids will do this before. Some kids will do this way before nine months. But when if it's nine months and they're not doing it, that should definitely be a huge red flag in in, in your mind. So even if you're seeing them for, if they're sick, well, obviously they they might not perform their best because they're coming in for an ear infection or because they're 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 not not feeling well. But if they're coming in just to get their vaccines and stuff like that, just to understand that those are kind of things that we want to kind of just keep in mind as far as like what we're going to do and what we would do next. Because the first step step is obviously educating the parents as far as like oh no, put them on the floor more, give them more toys. Uh, I know that it, it's hard because they put everything in their mouth, but please let's let's, let's try to stimulate them a little bit more. Uh, then the next phase would be like referring to early childhood, you know, intervention services. So ECI, the only reason I wanted to just make sure I touch base on this is that please understand that the ECI is an educational model. So they're there to actually help their caregivers learn how to stimulate their child or work with their child. 
And um, it's not a direct therapy model. So even though they will do tasks with them and stuff like that, their main goal is to uh, teach the caregivers and then let them continue to do things on their own. Um, so that's why sometimes you won't see as intense, like you'll hear, oh yeah, they get DCI, they get speech therapy, you know, every two weeks or once a month or whatever. First of all, they're stretched very thin, but second of all, their model is to be more uh, educational and therapeutic because remember, DCI is what helps with the transition into school age um, and preschool programs. And important to know that qualifying, you have to be almost, uh, you have to be two standard deviations from the norms. So if you send a five-month-old uh, that doesn't have one of the automatic qualifying diagnoses, which you're seeing, you're going to see below. Uh, they won't necessarily evaluate them because they'll, they'll screen them and ask a few questions. And if they're not two standard deviations behind, or even if they do their their assessment, um, sometimes um, their examinations uh, aren't sensitive enough to be able to detect if you're if you're four if you're four months old and you have to be like two standard uh, two months behind, which would uh, be the uh, two standard deviations would be about two months behind. Then you're acting like a newborn. So it's really sometimes it sometimes it, it's hard to discern when they're very young, especially with motoric issues, um, uh, just for you to be aware of. So when you send like a, a, an infant now, if a child has plagiocephaly, which is, as you see below, uh, an automatic qualifier, those are important things to uh, make sure that you spell out because they'll at least qualify for an evaluation. That doesn't mean that they're going to get ECI services, but it means that they'll go out and, and help them out. So these are kind of the buzzwords, you know, and I just list them there, cerebral palsy, uh, prematurity, but prematurity has to be extremely low birth weight, so less than 1250 grams, hypotonia, and plagiocephaly. If you actually say right protocols, you actually might not get help and services. So please understand that you have to be very specific because the people on the ECI side that do the intake may or may not be um, the service providers, usually not. So we have to kind of help help them along. And a lot of times we'll say, we'll refer to ECI and feel like it just happens. Well, they'll call and they'll even call again. But if there's not, uh, if we don't empower our parents to be aware that they're going to call and that we want them to come and be seen, then it's really important that that we reiterate to them so that they actually will get at least some kind of uh, interventional services. The, the other thing is, it's really important that Remember I said this is sort of an educational model and not a direct therapy model. They will help us with transition to school. The other important thing is that they'll actually give us feedback and they'll say, well, the child doesn't meet criteria or he's not that far behind or that kind of stuff. So it's another set of eyes that can help us. Yeah, they obviously go to, go to the home um, and so they can see kind of what the environment is like. But because it's the educational model, if it's a grandmother who's taking care of the child, well, please understand that that's an issue um, because she may not be able to follow through or the parents that, that are bringing the kid to the um, appointment may not know what they're uh, working on. Now, if we do therapy services, uh, speech, occupational and physical therapy, uh, I know that everybody has the same difficulties and problems. Access to services is very limited. So don't forget about getting the hearing screen because that'll slow things down a lot. And then it's really important for caregivers and, and residents and healthcare providers and residents to know that there's a difference between doing home health services and clinical setting services. Um, home health, they come to your house, obviously, but it, but um, it, they, it'll empower the parents, there, uh, the caregivers that are in the home, the parents or the caregivers that are in the home to learn how to do things with them, as opposed to a clinical setting, which is like you have to take them to a brick and mortar place or take them somewhere else. And that the uh, nice thing there is that they have more toys and tools. Uh, so as they get older, sometimes that helps keep, keep them. Um, interested but if you have a child that has a lot of anxiety and those sort of things well maybe being in the home may be beneficial but you also get to the, the other the other extreme where if you have a child that has a behavioral problem um, when they're on their home turf well then they won't um, work with the therapist as well um, then one thing that we have with therapy services privately is that the quality varies even within like the same organization and it could be just like someone just clashes like a child doesn't get well get along well with a specific therapist or one therapist does things a little bit different than the other. So parents always say, well, then who should I, who should I go see? And I was like, and it's hard for me to say. What I usually tell parents is let's try and see how they continue to progress. And then, um, then we can kind of decide from there if that's the best fit for their family and for their uh, child uh, that you have any the developmental concerns. Uh, one thing that I always like to ask is ask the parents like what homework that the therapist has given them because we want to know what they're working on. And even though they sometimes at the clinical settings, they'll take the patient and they'll take them to the back and the parents aren't allowed to go back. That's for a couple of reasons as far as decreased distractors or those sort of things. But it's important to know what they're working on so that you can actually apply it 
so the parents and caregivers can apply it in the home setting. I think one of the things that happens is that um, parents sometimes forget, and we have to remind them that going to therapy is not magic. Uh, it doesn't just fix everything just because they go see a therapist. Um, I like to tell parents it's kind of like going to the gym. Going to the gym once a week is nice, but it's the other you know six days that I stop at McDonald's and don't exercise that that, that unfortunately bode poorly for for my physique. So it's really important for that parents to know that it's they have to have the follow-through and the follow-up. And remember that a lot of times the parents aren't the, the, the ones that are with the child all the time. So it's important that we encourage communication even within uh, care providers. But at 18 months, the, the, they recommend a screener and the use of the MCHAT. Um, at 18 months, I always think of 18-month visit as pointing, either following a point or pointing for what you want and, and need. You know, you want them to have two or three words, not in combination, but that they're using, you know, mama, papa, whatever they call their bottle, those kind of things. Uh, if you give them a writing utensil, you, you, usually parents will tell you, oh, yeah, my walls are all scraped, uh, you know, colored up and that kind of stuff. Um, obviously, by that point, they're already um, taking a few steps and uh, climbing on and off of uh, uh, different things is, 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 is a good um, milestone for gross motor uh, and transitional uh, abilities. Um, by helping dress, I mean that a child will help um, put their arm through the through the sleeve um, and pull. They, they don't necessarily always are good at pulling things up. <laughs> they they get really good at at uh, taking off, but uh, putting on is a little bit harder. And uh, you know, toilet training is something that you guys talk about and stuff like that. But we need to be uh, not only self awareness of when you're going to go or when you're wet and dirty, but the ability to be able to you know not only help out but help with the pulling up of the underwear and the up or whatever. Um, imitation is uh, really important at this age. Sorry, I went over, I'm out of, out of turn, but the most important thing is pointing, being able to point for needs and wants, uh, and even you pointing to something and then having them follow it. The reason I say that is because that's when they suggest doing the modified checklist for autism and toddlers. The sensitivity and specificity is, is pretty good, 83% and specific about 94% of the time. Um, but it's really important to know that it depends on what your population is. Um, if you're working with like extremely premature infants, well, you can see there that the sensitivity and specificity may not be, you know, what you would what you always want. So just to keep a higher incidence of uh, uh, the possibility of different populations may screen differently. That's why I, I put that in there. But it is a good way of trying to figure out like what child may be at higher risk of having uh, an autism spectrum disorder. Uh, as you know, this is just a, a set of 20 questions, and then the, the fine-tuning is if they are, don't have enough uh, abnormals. I think that if they say, uh, you know, yes on 2, 5, and 12, or whatever, and or no on the other ones, those are considered positives. So it, it's very sensitive and very specific, and it has a pretty good sensitivity. So it's a very good tool to use, especially when it only takes about 5, 10 minutes to, to administer. Now, please understand that I guess what is it called? The United States um, Task Force on Preventative Services says that it was a waste of time to do the MCHAT at 18 months and stuff um, because it was a, a certain for feasibility sake and those sort of things. But I think it's very important to administer the MCHAT if you can twice because even if they don't come across as positive at 18 months, you're at least asking the questions and putting in the back of the parent's mind your concerns about you know, joint attention and following points and those sort of things, or any kind of uh, behavioral uh, differences or aberrations. So at 24 months, that's what they suggest just doing the, the, the end chat. Uh, the most important thing, 24 months talking, two word combinations, noticing, you know, emotions in others when others are upset, being able to point to body parts, kicking a ball, running, those are important things. So I always like to think 24 months, two-word combinations or, or talking. Uh, when, they, when I say playing with two items or toys, it's really important for them to be able to like, they take they have a car that they're playing with or they have a dolly and then they're using the spoon to put it in or they have a car and they put the ball in the back of the dump truck to, to, to transport and stuff like that. That means they're able to combine two different things at the same time. Um, so autism spectrum disorders, remember I said I was gonna talk a little bit about it. Well, it's very important to know that. So, what, what what is this one in thirty six by age eight? Well, as you know, there's there's the the CDC has this uh, mobility um, the annual report from the year twenty twenty, and it was just published in twenty twenty three. The autism developmental and disability monitoring 
It takes place in 11 states, but it's, it's like 17 sites in these 11 states. And one of the, the, one of the differences, they actually changed a little bit about how, they, how, they, how things get reported and stuff. Uh, I'm not saying that, there's, that the incidence is not greater or, or increasing because it may be, but I want you to know that they, they use kind of more billing codes and then they back check the files as opposed to before they actually would take this, the historical uh, diagnosis and then go back and see it. And remember they're monitoring like the education system. So if there's a school-based diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder or any healthcare uh, system where they do like um, um, vaccination records and those sort of stuff, they, they kind of go back They obviously encourage the primary care providers to, to, to submit to a sort of a, a database a, a monitoring. But it's just really important to know that they use sort of the billing codes and then back test and that they didn't have to have a, a formal um, testing for autism, such as the ADOS or the CARS or the GARS or all the different ones that, that you may or may not have heard of before. Um, I don't want you to think that I don't think autism spectrum disorders is, a, is, 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 is something to take lightly. It obviously is. Um, this this, this uh, showed that uh, about four times as many boys as girls. I think it was the first time that they showed that more um, individuals of color were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And they, they actually felt that in the discussion that it might be because they changed. The other thing that they changed besides how they found them and, and di diagnosed, uh, officially diagnosed them as having a spectrum disorder is they actually changed the denominator when they calculated uh, prevalence and stuff to account for the different um, races in the different states. Because uh, as you notice, one of the things is that there's not, Texas is not one of the, the monitoring uh, locations. And please understand that the autism rates were different. So in California, I think it was like 44, one in 44. And then I think it was Maryland, there was like 23, uh, one in 20, 23. So it did vary. So the, the one in 36 is, is an average. And just how we compare kind of worldwide, there's a big meta-analysis done. It's uh, headed below. It's it's one in 100. Was, it was, it, and when I just got back from the Society of Donald Behavioral Peds, I talked to my friends in, in, in Singapore and Shanghai and different places. And they say that about one in 100 is sort of what they're seeing in their in their countries. You know, just autism spectrum disorders. I won't want to spend too too much time, but it's just important to know that the DSM five in two thousand thirteen got rid of the diagnosis of pervasive developmental disorder or Asperger's, and now everything now is an autism spectrum disorder. Just important important to point out here because sometimes I still get referrals for for pervasive developmental disorder or or Asperger's, um, and that helps a little bit. But just to know that the nomenclature is is changing over time, um, and the degree of severity. It's kind of interesting, you know, where the most severe is the level three and the most mild and where people say, well, high functioning is a level one. Um, there's not a not very good information on like, how do you subdivide each one, level three, level two and level one, because it goes by order of uh, support. So a level one person requires some degree of support. A level two requires, as you'll see before, su substantial support and uh, a level a level three is a very substantial support. So I guess it's kind of like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, I, I usually tell parents when I'm seeing them very young, it doesn't matter what level they're at because we're trying to improve wherever they start at. And that most of these um, levels are as far as severity scales, I have to do more with language and um, adaptive abilities. But the truth is that if I apply that adaptive ability to any any three-year-old, well, I don't think they can do everything by themselves. So they would have to require some degree of support and services. I'd like to tell parents that it has to do with communication and adaptive abilities, especially as we're getting into the teenage years and deciding as far as adulthood, if they're going to be completely independent, if they're going to need to work, be in a group home, if they have to be institutionalized, or they're going to, you know, it helps us better as they get older and transitions to other things. The, once again, the DSM-5 just divided things into like social communication domain and then the repetitive stereotypic behaviors. Um, the DSM-5-TR just came out in March of 2022. The, the only thing that changed was that, they, that it's just a little bit more forceful in the way that they say that when it comes to the social um, language issues, that you have to have all three. So in, in the criteria A, um, they, it has always been that you needed all three, but they made it very specific that you have to have some degree of aberration or, or in social emotional reciprocity. Um, 
you know, playing with the ball back and forth, making eye contact, that kind of stuff uh, is the number two. Uh, with uh, nonverbal behaviors, you know, following the point, pointing for your needs and wants for your age. So a lot of times people will see my my evaluation and they're like, well, how did they barely uh, score as being autistic, Dr. Fierro? And I'm like, well, because I have to compare them to other two-year-olds. Uh, and guess what? A lot of two-year-olds don't do a lot of, uh, a, lot, uh, a lot of these uh, more higher order emotional issues uh, and inter interactions. For example, I tell parents, you know, you know, it's actually normal for 12-month-olds to line up toys. It's not normal for your four-year-old to line up toys and have a meltdown when someone moves one of, one of the things that's in the line. So I just want you to know that there is some degree of assess, uh, uh, assessment, and you have to kind of put it in the context of, you know, their expected development. And then as far as restricted or repetitive behaviors, sort of um, saying the same thing over or being inflexible in your routine, Things have to be only a specific way. Restrict area of interest, like the kids that know everything about, you know, Toy Story, and that's the only thing that they do. And then hyper or hyposensitivity. So that's a lot of times you'll find those or just tease those out when when you're talking about like feeding issues, um, where they only like to eat one thing. Like there's picky eating toddlers, but there's uh, there's some kids that there are certain textures that they won't do. I had a child. This is an extreme that didn't like the color yellow. And when they saw the color yellow, they would gag and vomit. Uh, so that's obviously the way extreme sort of sort of things. But uh, I want you to know that, you know, being hypersensitive or hyposensitive to things does uh, put you at high, high risk. And it actually helps us sort of when they when they're when they're getting older, like how are they going to be able to be in a classroom setting? Do they need to use noise canceling headphones and those sort of things? And just the, the, as far as the DSM-5, it has to happen early and it has to impair function because the truth is that, in my personal opinion, we all have some sensory issues, uh, but it's if it impairs your, your social functioning. I, have a, I, I do not like it when people run the metal fork tines on their teeth. It bothers me. It's like fingernails on a chalkboard. Uh, but fortunately, I haven't like jumped across the, the, the table and, and strangled anyone or yet. And so it's really important just to know that uh, we all have issues. In, in these all areas, but it's when it causes you causes you difficulty in your overall functioning that it becomes a problem. Just briefly, I just wanted to touch base on sort of the the, the formal testing that they do for diagnosing autism. Um, the ADOS, which is the, probably the it's considered the gold standard because it's the one that's used the most in um, in, in research. Uh, so right now, I think that uh, the uh, autism diagnostic observation scale takes about an hour to uh, hour to administer. They have more uh, tasks that they, the child has to do. It's divided into different modules as far as, and it's divided by, you know, age and, and abilities. Um, it's about 95% sensitive and 80% specific. The Childhood Autism Rating Scale, uh, which is, it takes less, it takes like 15 to 20 minutes to administer, um, is about 80% sensitive, uh, sensitive and 88% specific. The, the reason that I'm mentioning these is because those two, the ADOS, the CARS, and there's another one that's called the GARS, are the ones that um, the ABA therapy needs to provide ABA therapy services. Uh, the one little caveat I wanted to add, add to you is that to tell the autism rating scale, uh, it actually has a, uh, another test that's done for, for high-functioning uh, individuals. So when, you, when, when uh, I get a referral for, you know, um, nine or 10 year old, well, that, that's the one I usually use to kind of help me tease out because it asks more higher order things because they might not be lining up toys anymore. Or they might be doing something different. So it, they ask the questions are a little bit uh, more appropriate to their cognition. Uh, this was a meta-analysis. That's why I, put, I threw it in here. So ABA therapy, just my two cents on ABA therapy. It's not a cure for autism. It's very important for people to understand that uh, just because you get ABA therapy, there's no magic that happens, but it's the only proven modality because it's the one to show meaningful improvements. But I think it's because this particular population is due to the intensity. So when when uh, they first did it, Lovos did it, um, it was 40 hours per week. Uh, that's pretty intense. That's like a full time job. You know, um, now if you get 10 to 20 hours a week, that's probably pretty darn good. Um, and then it's hard. How do you incorporate going to, to a therapy and, and going to a school? You know, it's really difficult sometimes for these families to be able to, to, to maneuver this. But we do know that, you know, sometimes to get the next step up in development, we have to do a kind of a tough love approach. So applied behavior analysis, you know, they take the, the antecedent behavior um, portion and they're very 
consistent and strict that if the child doesn't do what is wanted, then they don't get what they want. And it's not because they want meltdowns all the time, but it's a very structured way of trying to help the children kind of move the ball forward uh, in, in not only nonverbal communication, but as they get older, verbal communication and functional language, which is called pragmatic language. Unfortunately, fortunately, Medicaid now pays for ABA therapy, but because of that, there have been a lot of centers that, that pop up. And, un and un unfortunately, on the bad side is that now they have long waiting lists. <laughs> so it's, it's, a, it's a pros and cons. So I usually tell um, providers, if we can get the ball rolling, you know how I said that, that they need the formal, um, you know, cars or ADOS or whatever to be um, to get a medical, uh, not only the medical diagnosis, but the, but, a, but a test on record so they can get the, the, the services. But you can get the ball rolling with early intervention, um, if need be, like early school programming, referring them to speech and occupational therapy is appropriate, especially if kids have the sensory problems or issues, the occupational therapy to help you with daily living skills and speech, focusing on either joint attention, which is being able to attend to something at the same time, working on the goal of being imitation so that we can teach some sign language in the future. Because honestly, with the behaviors on these kids, it tends to be communication based. And you guys know this, that if you can't say what you want and what you need, you get frustrated. And we see this over and over again with this special population. We also see it with our kids that have ADHD that are bouncing off the walls. If they can't communicate their needs and wants, they'll just go and get it. Uh, going back to the screening, because remember, this is what this talk is about. Um, at 30 months, they, they suggest doing a general uh, screening. And remember, um, the ASQ which is the one I most definitely see, they, they break it down into different domains, the speech, the social, emotional, um, you know, physical, fine motor and gross motor. The 30 months, my, my big thing is play. That's when you're starting to show more imagination. That's where actually playing with others. You know, at 24 months, they parallel play. They play next to each other, but um, they don't uh, maintain long relationships. It's hard. So that's why you see them play tag or, or um, you know, do, do things where they, they're running around and stuff like that, and then they can leave and then come back. At 30 months, we also want them to be able to follow a simple direction. That's when you start singing the cleanup game song and they, they at least pay attention to you. They're starting to put more than two words together, so you're hearing little phrases. Um, like I said before, pretend play, maybe identifying some colors or actually going beyond scribbling, turning the pages of a book, being able to jump. You know, and for fine motor skills, being able to unscrew like a, a big lid and stuff like that. Obviously, they can't do uh, medicine bottles, thank goodness. But uh, but just to be able to unscrew things. So 30 months, I think, of play. And then the school rate, remember, there's not a, you can obviously do the ASQ if you want. It's just that sensitivity uh, is, is much less uh, at the higher ages. Remember, we, we talked about that in the past. Um, there's, there's, uh, so the sensitivity is low, but we just want to make sure we can at least ask some questions to see if the child is actually ready for school. To me, the most important thing about school readiness is focus, uh, because this is when you start noticing the attention deficit uh, issues. A kid that's been kicked out of you know three daycares already, uh, or the little girl who's like, "Wow, she's so smart," but um, you know she just doesn't follow through with when, when we ask her for the specific direction. So being able to sit and hold a crayon. Um, answer a question back and forth, even just simple being able to count. Um, please understand that by the time that they get out of kindergarten now, it's different than when we were in school. They actually want them reading um, reading words. Uh, so yeah, in kindergarten, is just not don't eat the crayons and take turns. Um, they're actually pushing uh, some, some academic things forward, which is I think is a good thing. Uh, but I, but it's just important for you to know that there are more rigorous academic expectations when someone finishes kindergarten. So being able to get into preschool, and pre, that's actually very good. Um, I do believe that it is a monkey see, monkey do kind of world in the sense that if you're around other kids that are talking, that increases your chances of wanting to talk. Um, I have this belief that if a child's not talking and adults are talking to them, maybe they're hearing it and stuff, but they're like, well, when I'm big like them, then I'll start talking. Or uh, caregivers that are very you know, nice, but uh, give them everything they want and don't expect them to, to, to do, use more words and utterances can not facilitate their language uh, development. I wanted to take a couple of seconds to talk about the differences once they get into school uh, between an IEP and a 504. Just briefly, look, I know you guys can read, but the bottom line is IEP has federal funds 
and it follows the child as they continue to get older. The 504 plan is what can they do in the actual classroom to help facilitate if someone has attentional issues. So you'll tend to see children with um, ADHD that have a 504 plan. If you have a child that's extremely complex, has uh, autism, seizures, that kind of stuff, they have an IEP. Um, obviously that varies. Um, the most important thing I think that you can take away from this is that when a parent has an ARD uh, annual review and they talk about what the, what the plans are for the child the next school year, it's important to empower parents and let them know that if they don't hear something that they want, the most important thing they can do is not sign the, the, the meeting. It's got to be difficult for a parent to be in a room with five other care providers, uh, the teachers, the social worker, maybe an assistant uh, principal, that kind of stuff telling you what to do. But if you really want a child to have like a behavior intervention plan because they've been running out of the room and stuff like that, it's okay to not sign the uh, the uh, meeting notes. Uh, because as soon as it signs, then it's done and they, they can wait to implement them for the following year. Um, you can call an ARD whenever you want, that's your right as a taxpayer. Um, but I think it's really important because if you don't sign, then within a certain amount of time, the TA starts to get involved. And schools and school districts don't like the Texas Education Agency to, to, to be involved in, in, in putting a, a microscope or a, a, on there on what they do and what they don't do. So you'll have a lot more flexibility in, in, in room, wiggle room, uh, empowering parents to like ask for one thing. Now, obviously they can't be extraordinary for a, where they're asking for a one-on-one -on -one teacher uh, only for the child or those sort of things. But we, within reasonable uh, expectations, I think we can get some, some help. And there's a advocacy groups where you can actually get a parent advocate. I think that um, one of the slides that I have uh, is about different advocacy resources. Uh, parent to Parent is a great, great group. Uh, Navigate Life Texas, even just if you go through the Texas Education Agency, Education Agency, there are different ways that we can get uh, children and service, services and help. So the reason, so the reason I put this is that once they get into school, there are things that we can do as providers to help empower them and to make things uh, move faster. A lot of times when the children goes into a school setting, they'll say, well, they're getting speech at school already. Why would they, why would they need private services? The, the educational model for, for therapy services and the medical model are a tiny bit different. Um, uh, in education, I think that they like to work in small groups and they don't, it doesn't have to be as intense. And a lot of it is like uh, informing the teacher and giving the teacher tips. It might not always be one-on-one. -on -one. Now, there are some, some places that do one-on-one -on -one with, with the children or at least small group settings, but it's just not, not, not the same. Uh, so if a child is really behind in their language stuff, I still recommend, if possible, to get uh, uh, private th uh, therapy services. Like, for example, occupational therapy. If the child can sit in the chair and hold a, a utensil, then they pretty much do not qualify for occupational therapy services in the school. Um, and I use occupational therapy to help me with, you know, uh, establishing a sensory diet, uh, working on fine motor skills to improve their handwriting skills, task completion, and those sort of things. I just got back from the Society of Development and Behavioral Pediatrics. It was in Minneapolis, I think. And um, you should know that there's only officially 863 certified developmental and behavioral pediatricians um, in, in, in the United States. And um, estimates show that about 16 million uh, children uh, have that one in four developmental disability concerns. And obviously, I know that other, other specialties, uh, child psychiatry and and neurology and, and other places, to, you know, see some of these special needs uh, children. But um, I divided it out. And if you, it, it turns out they'd be like 18, if we each one of us took some special needs kids, I think it's like 18,500. And if we divide that into a year, if, if we do 365 days, uh, so working through um, every single day of the year, it would be like seeing 50 patients a day, uh, five, zero, 50. So, um, Obviously, we want to be a resource and we want to be helpful with uh, appropriate diagnosis and management. But just note that obviously there are some limitations. I wish more people would go into developmental behavioral peds. I find it very interesting and invigorating, but um, uh, it, it's a, it can be hard um, to get people interested. Sorry, uh, when to refer to a developmental behavioral pediatrician? Obviously, you're gonna you're gonna refer when, when you're concerned, and and, and unfortunately, different. Um, Clinics will have different criteria 
to accept or not accept. I, I know I learned that firsthand across the across the board when I was meeting with my colleagues for the national meeting just last weekend. Um, most importantly, I want you to know that we, what we can do is we can help with the management of the complex ADHD kids, autistic kids, you know, learning disabled behavioral issues. Look, the number one referral is, uh, you know, speech delay and, and odd behaviors. And that's fine. We can help sort of tease that out. But know that once a, a, a good uh, program and, and treatment management is established, well, then we may have to um, ask the primary care provider to, to, to continue to monitor and follow them because we can't continue to follow. We can't continue to do new diagnosis and follow everybody, everybody up in a timely manner. Um, if there's any developmental issues that are causing, you know, problems with the family dynamics, please know that we are not psychiatrists, but by the nature of the beast, we have become more and more con confident and comfortable with uh, use of psychotropic medications because we kind of follow, follow fill, a, fill a niche, you know, kids that are less than six years old and some kids that have dual diagnoses and just the fact that we need more, you know, child psychiatrists and uh, my colleagues on the child psychiatry uh, and you know, know this. Um, one thing that I wanted to note is that uh, an autism spectrum disorder, like I said before, is a, is a clinical diagnosis. It's not that you have to have the ADOS to be diagnosed or, or the CARS to be diagnosed. Sometimes you need that for accessing the ABA services, but just giving them the diagnosis and getting them into speech and occupational therapy or in a school set, setting where they understand the focus of the reason why this kid's not talking is not because his mouth doesn't work. It's that he doesn't know how to imitate or he doesn't have the appropriate joint attention. That's really important. So sometimes starting therapies uh, when you're confident about the, the diagnosis is appropriate. You know, there are some kids that have um, what I call uh, waiting room diagnoses where you can diagnose them just like even before they come in because they're sitting there hand flapping, making no eye contact uh, and those sort of things. Um, obviously, we continue to do the, uh, an assessment and stuff like that, but there are certain certain kids that are a lot easier than the ones where well, they're a little quirky and, you know, they don't have that many friends, you know, they're in third grade and we don't know what's going on because in life you're allowed to be quirky once again it, you have to you have to put it in the context of does it affect their overall development and interactions with others um, and then the reason i highlighted that last one is it's really important to uh know that the only way that i can see new referrals is if if it, at some point we're able to um give them back to the primary care provider uh, and not forever. We can do ongoing monitoring, but even just, I see my follow-ups about every four to six months. But as of right now, as you guys may or may not know, I started in March of this year seeing patients. And unfortunately, as of today, my next new patient appointment is in May of 2024. And that's just not fair. I hate kids being on waiting lists for a long, a long time because it, 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 it prevents their ability to to you know, access services. It prevents the ability of us to hopefully, you know, educate and empower parents. Uh, these are just some advocacy resources. There's a bazillion. Um, one thing that I wanted to mention in conclusion is just try to be mindful when you're going in to see a visit. Have your own sort of stick as far as like, oh, at nine months, this should be sitting. Yeah, you know, at, at 24 months, uh, two word combinations, talking, that, those kind of things. Um, it helps. It really does. Because it'll, it'll help you know, like, okay, what am I going to do? I go and see a nine month old. Guess what? I'm going to give him the reflex hammer uh, while I'm talking to mom. So to see if he will put it in his mouth. But let's see if he'll transfer from hand to hand. Uh, uh, use appropriate screening, you know, at, at 9, 18, 24, and 30 months. Um, try to initiate a treatment plan as soon as possible because everything takes a long time. And then be aware of community resources. So if you have a kid that has a severe developmental disability, like one of the most important community resources right now is um, the, the multi-assistance center at Morgan's Wonderland. Um, I call it uh, the medical mall because there's a lot of people under one roof with therapy, therapy, um, uh, not only therapy, but like eye doctors and dentistry, um, primary care providers, that kind of stuff. Um, but the most important thing is they have what they call a navigator. So every patient that, that, that goes there is assigned a navigator, which is kind of like a pseudo social worker that helps navigate not only the medical side of things, but the whole social security side. Uh, what uh, is available in the community as far as uh, other programs and those sort of things, because we really do need help with uh, transitioning into adulthood with, uh, with our special needs kids. And hopefully the, uh, the MAC and other programs similar to that will help us with that because, you know, their issues and needs don't stop when they turn 18. And it's really important to figure out how to help them in, in the long run. Um, 
And then the most important thing is try to empower parents. Uh, the more the more we can educate them, tell them that it's not their fault that the child has autism, uh, the better. There's so much guilt involved with all these diagnoses and stuff that um, it's important to just let parents know that we're there to try to help help them in the long run. And I know I had the, the technical snafus, and I apologize, guys. But uh, if everybody has any questions, I really appreciate your. Uh, Dr. Fierro, thank you. Thank you very much for educating us on developmental screening and when to refer the patients to uh, to you. I think Dr. Herndon has already ha uh, has his hand up. Dr. Herndon, can I ask you a question, please? Yeah, uh, I'm curious how you think uh, the developmental pediatrics and early childhood screening is going to be affected by the structural changes in the educational system as we move more and more towards uh, you know, you started off with ECI and then there's a two year gap there before more children are eligible to go to school at regular school. Um, and now we're talking about pre-K, universal pre-K and how that's going to affect things like inclusion and, and, and screening sequences and all of that. I think Yes, sir. That, that's a really that's a great a great question. I think that what happens is we need to continue to screen the kids. And and you are right. The ECI ends at three years of age, and then even uh, preschool program, um, some of them you know don't start until four years of age. But uh, but there are some early head starts, and if they have a, a diagnosis, hopefully they can access that. But obviously, you know there are some you know uh, salary limitations and those sort of things. So unfortunately, as uh, care providers, we have to kind of fill in a stopgap. Either you know asking if any caregivers can. Can, can follow through with, you know, uh, Mother's Day out programs, getting them plugged into some kind of a speech and occupational therapy services in, in the meantime. But you're right. I think that we need to continue to screen so that we can educate the families. Because, look, the most important thing with these kids is that to validate the parents' concerns if they're warranted and to find out what else is available in the community to help. Because sometimes I'll actually ask parents who don't have the means or they may not be here legally that, you know, you got to take your kid to the park. You got to try to do this. Look, one of the things about the screeners and stuff that I did not address is the, the whole language um, barrier um, yeah. uh, issues and the language barriers to access what's uh, available in the community due to, um, you know, uh, either means or the fact that, as you guys know, a lot of these families um, there's a reason that there's a reason the child may have developmental delays. Either maybe one of the parent may have some developmental delays, or have a uh, you know a ADHD or or, or the like. Um, we'll see what happens with the future. But the most important thing is as as healthcare providers is to advocate for uh, services for your for your for your, uh, for your kiddos. Doctor Fierro, uh, can you go to your slide with the resources again? Somebody wants to get the slide. Oh sure, sure. I'm sorry. So I went, oh Lordy, what did I do there? Yeah, that one. Advocacy resources. There <laughs> there's a there's a question in the chat. But what are your thoughts on implementation and reliability of echo autism stat programs for PCPs to diagnose less ambiguous autism in children to get faster access to services, especially if living in rural areas? Yeah, I think that the, the echo system. I actually just got an email about they're actually uh, want want to start one here in in San Antonio. Um, I just got back from the from the from the national conferences, and they're just, as you guys know, there's just so limited uh, amount of DVPs that um, that I think that the more and since autism is a clinical diagnosis, if we can actually empower primary care providers to be able to at least do the initial diagnosis, we can help with that management. I think the ECHO programs. Uh, I actually saw a poster on it uh, <laughs> this, that they've been shown to be effective in at least building up confidence in the primary care provider as far as giving a diagnosis. I know that getting a diagnosis of autism is a big deal and it comes with a lot of uh, baggage, those sort of things, but being able to have a child um, access in the, for the caregivers and the schools to understand where they're coming from is vital. So yes, I, th I believe that the, those ECHO programs uh, have a very important place in, help in helping uh, healthcare providers become, become more and more confident in being able to diagnose as they're waiting, you know, six, months to 12 months to be seen by somebody else. Any other questions, comments for Dr. Fierro? So how long should ABA therapy continue? That's one more That's a great question. That's a great question. The, the, it's, it has to honestly, it has to do by fu functionality. So if if a child has made some great inroads and now they're answering questions and they're using language and stuff like that, I I and maybe people don't like me saying this, but it's okay to put them full time in the school and see how they continue to progress. But whenever I have any 
problems and the child does have, can't even stay in the classroom and stuff, then they stay longer. So unfortunately, how long someone is doing ABA is on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on their level of functionality. One more question, last question before we conclude. Oh, great. Look, the yeah. one, the, the last Good. comment is, look, the, the last comment is it's okay, guys, that, to, to not be, to be concerned and to, and, to, and to have your little spidey senses tingle when there's a child with, with concerns. Just remember to red flag it and continue to follow them as they move forward. Uh, thank you, Dr. Fiero, for that wonderful presentation on developmental screening and also mm -hmm. educating us when to refer the patients to you. Thank <laughs> you right. all for, thank you all thank for, you attending for attending this morning's round rounds. Uh, I'm going to conclude this morning's round round. Have a wonderful Friday and a wonderful weekend. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pediatrics Now. Click on the link for free credit if you're a practitioner. You can also email us with questions or episode ideas. That address is pediatricsnow at uthscsa.edu. We release a new episode every Friday. I'm Holly Wayment. I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thanks for listening.